We are in week three of a five-week series entitled The Reconciliation of All Things. And uh, as you hopefully know by now, this isn't just another sermon series for us, but this is actually a vision series where we are seeking to try to communicate what we believe is God's vision for our church in this next season. And so I want to spend a little bit of time this morning kind of rehashing that vision in its entirety again, um, maybe repeating some of the things that Ken and I have already shared over the last couple weeks. But the reason for this is that our hope is that this vision that God has given us would be a vision that all of us share together, that all of us can own and begin to articulate as we strive to live out this vision and mission in our city and around the world. And so our hope is to really drive this thing into our hearts and uh, that we would be able to together say we believe as a church that this is what God is calling us to. And so we'll spend a little bit of time uh, kind of recasting that and then we'll dive into some specifics towards the end. And so let me start by um, taking a risk and doing some audience participation here. I want to ask you a question. Imagine, if anything were possible, what kind of world you would want to live in. Or in other words, what would a perfect world look like? What would be some of the things that come to mind? Go ahead and, and tell me what you think. What, what would a perfect world look like? People wouldn't hurt each other. Good. Say it again. Peaceful. I thought you said baseball, which that may be there too. <laughs> Peaceful. Absolutely. Say it again. Families. Families would be together. Good. A couple more. No death. No tears. No poverty. Somebody over here? Equality. Good. Awesome. So, by and large, what's interesting to me is as we do this little exercise, imagining a perfect world, for the most part, we have this shared vision of what a perfect world would look like. Now, we may have some individual requests along the way, right? Some baseball or no country music or no duck fans or well, I don't know what it would look like for you, <laughs> but... <clears throat> um, Personal preferences aside, like deep down, we do long for this world without violence, without poverty, without war, without disease, without pain. And in its place, we would imagine a world full of peace, full of love, full of harmonious relationships, where families live together, where things are as they ought to be. Now, for the most part, I think many of us in this room would call ourselves Christians. And so our vision of a perfect world is at least partly informed by our faith in Jesus. But what do you think would happen if we asked this question of a random room of people that included atheists and Muslims and Mormons and humanists? How different do you think their answers would be? Not very different, right? I think for the most part, regardless of your worldview or your religious affiliation or whatever, it's like there's something within humanity that has this shared vision for a world other than the one we currently live in. 
which is fascinating to me. Like innate within the human soul is a longing for another world. Now what's crazy is the world we just described, none of us have ever seen it. None of us have ever been there. And we know that's not the way we would describe the world we live in today. But somehow, simply by imagining and asking the question, humanity acknowledges this collective longing for another world. Why is that? Well, there could be a lot of reasons for it. But for me, it almost seems like a memory. It almost seems like there's something in our story that would cause us to be able to remember or dream or long for this other world. And so here's, here's the good news that the scriptures give us. And this is kind of a crazy thing. But the Bible actually has the audacity to claim that that new world we all intuitively long for is actually something that God has promised to bring about one day. So, for starters, we'll go to the end of the story. And this is a passage we looked at a couple weeks ago, but if you want to turn to Revelation 21, the last two chapters of the Bible, we see this vision, this promise of where human history is headed. It's a vision given to the Apostle John, and he's given a glimpse into what one day is going to happen. So in Revelation 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be, listen, no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Okay, so when we're dealing with a piece of biblical literature, like the book of Revelation, we're dealing with an apocalyptic book in its genre. So it's really difficult to know what all of the symbols and imagery represent. But I think we know enough to at least make some observations. So when John describes this new world that God will bring about and says that it's going to be a world with no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, the old order of things, the old way of doing things, the old reality has passed away, we begin to recognize that world that we just described a few minutes ago. That sounds a lot like that collective longing of humanity where every tear is wiped away and there is no more pain of injustice and oppression and stillbirth and suicide. And it's a world where there will be no more mourning or violence or depression or cancer or abuse. And it even says that humanity's biggest threat Death itself will be no more. No more casualties of terrorism. 
or of AIDS or of contaminated wells. It's starting to sound a lot like the world that we all long for. He's not done. Go to the next chapter, Revelation 22. This vision continues. Verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for God, the Lord God, will give them light, and he will reign forever and ever. So a few more observations. What do we notice more about this new world? It's a world of plenty, a world where everybody has everything that they need. It says that there's no longer any curse, meaning life is now objectively good, that things are the way they're supposed to be. He paints a picture of a world that's both beautiful and functional. It's harmonious and plentiful. And he says there's no more night, no more darkness, Night and darkness representing sin, brokenness, evil, pain, suffering, wickedness. And at the center of this new world, in both passages, is this picture of God right there in the middle, dwelling with his people, marking the the faces of his people, meaning giving them a security in their identity as those who are loved by him and belong to him. So to summarize, we have this picture at the end of the Bible that holds out this crazy promise that sounds too good to be true, if we're honest, that one day, the perfect world that all humanity longs for, one day is going to come true. And who is going to bring it about? It's not us. It's not any politician or philosopher or protester, but it's Jesus himself who brings about this whole new world and claims that he is making everything new. And as we've observed, at the center of this new world is God. And so the new world that we all long for, the way things are supposed to be, in a perfect world, God is at the center Contrast that with the world we live in. Who's at the center of our world? I am. You probably thought the answer was you, but it's actually me. (laughs) Right? Like so much of the brokenness and dysfunction within humanity is traced back to this tendency that we have ever since the garden to dethrone God from the center of the world and take his place ourselves, and build a world that revolves around us. But the world we long for is a world where God is king, or another way of putting it is the new world is the kingdom of God. And the promise of the Bible is that one day God's going to bring it about.
Now, the word that we've been using that many theologians have used to describe this world, the way things are, are, are supposed to be, is the word shalom, right? The Hebrew word for peace. And you know that that doesn't just mean the absence of conflict, but the idea of peace is that it's whole, robust, life-giving, harmonious relationships at every dimension, Eugene Peterson talks about it this way. He says, shalom is one of the richest words in the Bible. You can no more define it by looking up its meaning in the dictionary than you can define a person by his or her social security number. It gathers all aspects of wholeness that result from God's will being complete in us. It is the work of God that when complete releases streams of living water in us and pulsates with eternal life. And so shalom is traditionally understood to be the calling forth of the world God intended, of the world that he put this longing for within the hearts of humanity. And it's about the restoration of right relationships with God, with others, with ourselves, and creation. We'll come back to that again in a minute. And so this is how the story of the Bible concludes with these final two chapters. This vision of shalom on earth, this vision of a new world where everything is made right and made new again. The curse is reversed upon humanity and everything that's broken and decayed and damaged is turned right side up again. And so according to the Bible, this is where human history is headed. Now it doesn't feel that way very often, does it? But we believe that this is what God's up to. But it's not just the final two chapters of the Bible that talk about this vision for shalom or for restoration. It's actually all the way through the story of God. And once you kind of catch a vision for it, you start noticing it everywhere. It's like if you're thinking about buying a tundra, then all of a sudden every other car you see on the road is a tundra, right? Same thing happens when you catch this vision. And so the the primary passage that we're kind of anchoring this vision in is Colossians chapter 1. And I want you to read this again in the context of this promise at the end of the Bible. It helps give us new meaning and deeper understanding. So Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Okay, so here's what I want us to see. Paul is saying that the reason Jesus came and lived among us and suffered and died for us, and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, was that so through him, God's mission of reconciling all things 
might begin to come about. That this vision that we're given in Revelation 21 and 22 isn't just some weird tag-on epilogue to this story, but it's actually at the heart of the gospel. This is what God was up to when he sent his son into the world to bring about the reconciliation of all things. Okay, so we're using that word reconciliation a lot. And there's lots of ways we could try to define or describe it. I love the way our friends at the Global Immersion Project describe it. It's reconciliation is the holistic repair of severed relationships. The holistic repair of severed relationships. In other words, this is what the gospel is about. That God is even more than just providing a way for individual people like you and me to be made right with him, he's actually doing something way bigger than that. That he's doing this cosmic restoration project. He's making all things new. And he's bringing about this world that humanity collectively longs for. Paul connects this vision of restoration, reconciliation, and shalom with the gospel. So we'll keep reading. Colossians 1, 21. He says, once you were alienated from God, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in, in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel. What's he talking about? This, everything he's just said. God's mission to reconcile all things to himself through Christ. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Okay, so this is so important for us as a church to get if we're really going to be able to own this vision together. That this is the gospel, this epic announcement that the cross of Jesus is about God reconciling all things to himself. But Paul then makes it personal, doesn't he? And what he's telling this first church in Colossae is that this reconciliation of all things includes you. That you are one of those things that God is reconciling to himself. As part of God's mission in the world, he's making a new humanity. He's making people new creations. He's taking those like you and I who were once enemies of God, and he's bringing us in whole, and repaired and blemished. And he sums up this whole conversation by going, this is the gospel. And so I don't know about you, but for me, so many versions or tellings of the gospel that I've heard and given throughout my life, they sound way smaller than this, right? And in fact, a lot of versions of the gospel don't even sound like good news at all which gospel means good news. By definition, the gospel should sound like good news. It should sound like something that even if I can't believe it's true, I wish that it was. A lot of times the gospel is presented as something that I hope's not true. It sounds like bad news. 
because we haven't captured Paul's vision and the vision of the scriptures. That this gospel isn't just about me going away to heaven when I die. The gospel is about God bringing heaven to earth and all things being made new, including me, including you and I. So here's how I like to summarize the gospel, and I've shared with you th- this with you before. But it's this. It's the announcement that in Jesus Christ, God himself has broken into human history. And he's joined himself to humanity and suffered and died for our sin, victoriously risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, inaugurating God's kingdom on earth and launching a cosmic revolution to make all things new, including us. And so when we hear and believe this news, repenting of our sin and trusting in the person and work of Christ, God's restorative power comes upon us. And we're united with Christ, given new and eternal life, forgiven of our sins, adopted by the Father, and empowered by the Holy Spirit to join God on his mission of restoring all things back to himself. To me, that sounds like good news. Something that I hope is true. And so if that gospel is the foundation of the Christian faith, then what does that mean for followers of Jesus? Do we just kind of file that on a theological shelf somewhere and say, okay, I guess that's what God's doing in the world? That's not how it's supposed to work. And that's not how it worked for the earliest communities of Christ followers. They saw themselves not only as recipients of that gospel, but also as people who would be participants in it. That if that is what God is up to in the world, then what does it mean for us to be part of it? So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul addresses this question. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here, and all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So hopefully you catch what Paul's doing here. He's connecting this good news that God is on a mission to reconcile all things to himself, and he's giving it as an exhortation as well. This is good news that demands a response that if we are actually to believe this story, that it's going to shape us and it's going to call us and it's going to empower us for a life we could never live otherwise. If it's true that through Jesus, God has reconciled us to himself and that's the gospel, then it's also true that to be part of what God's doing in the world is to be entrusted with this ministry and message of reconciliation. We want to do what God is doing. We want to be part of this redemptive work that he has going here in this broken world. And so we know that it's only God, through Jesus, that can ultimately bring bring about this new world. So we don't primarily put our faith in a political party 
or a philosophical worldview or even in a certain lifestyle thinking that that's the answer, whatever our bumper stickers may say, we primarily trust Jesus as the only one who can do this, but we trust Jesus as the one who invites us to be part of what he's doing. Not just recipients, but active participants. And so the reconciliation of all things is not only the mission of God, but it's also the vocation of God's people. Vocation meaning our sacred calling. It's what we're here for. It's what we've been saved to. To share in the life of God. Participate in the divine nature. Be ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven living here on earth. And so if we come back then to the idea of shalom, reconciliation is the holistic repair of of severed relationships, then shalom is the result of reconciliation. Shalom is what we're shooting for. It's right relationship, again, with God and with others and with ourselves and the rest of creation. And the vision of the Bible seems to capture that vision of reconciliation and shalom somehow within this symbol of the cross. And so we've been using this cross to try to depict what does it look like for us to be shaped by this announcement that in Christ God's making all things new. He's restoring us to right relationship with himself, with God at the top, And then with others, which we're breaking out into circles, starting here in the church, and then moving out into our cities, and then across the world. Also, right relationship with ourselves, becoming whole people who God made us to be, and then understanding that this even extends to the non-human parts of God's creation. That this, when he says all things, some of us are uncomfortable with that. I kind of am too. That's what the Bible says, all things being reconciled, all of creation. And so our question is, what would it look like to truly be a cross-shaped community? The theological term is cruciform, where this symbol of Jesus waging a decisive peace through his blood shed on the cross actually becomes the shape of our lives. It becomes the sound of the stories that we're living. And so I would argue that a community of Christians who are pursuing the holistic repair of severed relationships in every aspect of their lives would be on their way to the the mission statement that Antioch has had for many years now, our dream to be an authentic expression of Christianity in Bend, Oregon. Primarily not known for what we believe, but for the story that we're living into. That we are pursuing this good news with our whole being. And we're not letting the gospel and, and and our faith be confined to that little compartment of our life called religion or spirituality, but we're saying this shapes all of life. This shapes every relationship we have up and down, and with ourselves, and with our neighbors, locally and globally, and even with the rest of creation. Our vision 
is to see Jesus form Antioch into a truly cross-shaped, cruciform community. That we would be his physical representation in Bend, in Central Oregon, across the country and around the world. That when people observe our lives, when they draw near to us in relationship, when they hear the message that we proclaim, that it would truly look and sound like good news, like something we can hope was true, even if it's still hard to believe. And so over these five weeks, we're spending a little bit of time on each one of these, these boxes or domains, if you will. And uh, last week, Ken talked about what it means to be reconciled to God and what it means to be reconciled to ourselves. This week, we're going to talk about the two arms of the cross, if you will, the city and the world, the local and the global. What does it look like for us to be participants in God's mission of reconciliation here in the city we live in and also in the greater context of the world? And we're doing these two together because we hold a both-and approach in the way we think about what it means to be the church, right? Our mission statement, again, is to be an authentic expression of Christianity in Bend and to have a shaping voice in global Christianity. So we're not choosing local or global. We're choosing both and. And the tendency lots of churches or Christians have is to go all in on one or the other when they think about what it means to be the church or follow Jesus. I've been around churches that think we shouldn't spend any time or money on stuff overseas when there's so much work to be done right here in our own backyard. And so when they don't go on mission trips or support missionaries or have global conversations, they're just totally focused on the plot of land that they're on. And then on the other hand, you have churches that spend all their time and money and energy on overseas missions sending missionaries and going on mission trips and doing all that stuff, but they totally neglect the place where they live in their own context. And so we don't want to fall into either of those traps. We believe that the gospel calls us to be both locally and globally minded, locally and globally active in what it means to follow Jesus and to be the church. And so I'll take a couple minutes on each of these to try to give us a little bit of a vision for what does it look like to be ministers and messengers of reconciliation here in Bend and Central Oregon and around the world. And so for the city box, we are using the practice of hospitality or being a neighbor to say here's what it looks like not just to agree with the ministry of reconciliation, but to actually participate and practice it. So we live within this really unique place. And it's a place that most of us have chosen to live. We've moved here from other places around the country for the lifestyle, for the weather, for the culture, for the pace of life that we enjoy. So the first thing I want to make sure we're really clear on, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but I want to make sure you know this. Bend is a city. Bend is a city. It's not just a way of life. It's actually a real city. 
that is made up of all different kinds of people and has all different kinds of problems and all different kinds of possibilities for what it looks like for humanity to share life in a reconciled way. Now, the reason I emphasize that, as silly as it sounds, is that, again, we don't think of it as a city. We think of it as a place we come for the lifestyle. I know that's a generalization, not true of everybody, but we come in a lot of ways, in a lot of cases, to get away from people, to get away from traffic, to get away from the rat race, to come and to frontier and to enjoy the open space. And it's great. It's a blessing. We shouldn't feel guilty about where we live, but we have to understand this is actually a city. And throughout Scripture, I could show you many different places where when the gospel or the blessing of God falls upon his people, that the deal that God has always had is that I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. Meaning, the places where God's people show up throughout both the Old and New Testaments, the invitation they had was to be the presence of God, or another way of saying it is to embody the good news of God in their very life. And so the point is that as a church, an expression of Christ's church here in Bend, our hope and our prayer and our dream is that Antioch in its very existence would be good news to the city of Bend and the area of Central Oregon. That even if our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and the people we hang out with don't believe what we believe, if we are living into this story of reconciliation, then they should be glad that we're here. Okay, and so we're helping qualify hospitality with the idea of being a neighbor, which we get that language from the story of the Good Samaritan. But even more so, we get it from the Great Commandment, where Jesus says, Here's the most important thing to me about my people. Here's what my disciples are going to look like. First, they're going to love God with everything they've got. And secondly, they're going to love their neighbor as they love themselves. These are to be the marks of the Christian life. Love for God, love for neighbor, love for self. Which means, if a Christian moves into your neighborhood you ought to be stoked, right? Because here's somebody who's claiming that one of the most important things in their life is to be someone who loves their neighbors. Well, that should be a really good neighbor, shouldn't it? We should all pray for Christian neighbors. Even if we don't believe what they believe, it should be good news to have a professional neighbor lover move next door. (laughs) Now, obviously... When Jesus, in the Great Commandment, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, other places, when he talks about our neighbors, he's talking about more than the person we, sh- we live close to, but he's not talking about less than that. And that whole Good Samaritan story starts with the guy asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? Basically saying, how can I get out of this? And for us, that same question is tempting to ask as well. Well, surely you can't mean them. You can't mean them. They're conservatives. You can't mean them. They're way richer or way poorer 
than me or whatever else it is. And Jesus goes, ah, no, your neighbor is your neighbor. Love the people around you. Seek their peace and prosperity. Your presence should be good news in their lives. And so the practice that we are suggesting is this broad term, hospitality. Which is a word that's largely been hijacked by hotels and resorts and things like that. But it actually has deep roots in scripture and in theology. That God's people are called to be a hospitable people who practice hospitality as a way of life. Now why? Well again, remember in Paul's part in 2 Corinthians where he says we were once enemies of God. We were others to God. But in Christ, he has brought us into himself. He has brought us into his life, into his family, adopted us so that now he's our father. The gospel story can incredibly easily be told as a story of amazing hospitality. God opening his life to a stranger, to an other, even to an enemy. That's what he's done with each of us. We were who were once far off from him, separated from him because of our sin and selfishness. He says, I'm going to make a way for you to find new and eternal life with me forever. So the reason we talk about being hospitable people as followers of Jesus is because in Jesus is revealed a hospitable God. A God who welcomes the stranger. A God who isn't selfish, but who is incredibly generous. A God who welcomes people of all different backgrounds and faiths and races and ethnicities to come and to find new life and a new home and a new identity with him forever. This is one of the things that the earliest Christian communities were known for. In fact, for the first 400 years of Christianity, this is the primary way the gospel spread, was by followers of Jesus opening their homes and opening their lives to the sick, to the stranger, to the immigrant, to their neighbor. And saying, we don't just want to share our faith with you, we want to share our life with you. Because God has blessed us to be a blessing. Because God has welcomed us into his life, we want to welcome you into ours. So look at Romans chapter 12, where Paul writes to this early Christian community in Rome. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. And finally, practice hospitality. We didn't come up with this. Paul's saying, what does it look like to be a cross-shaped community? What does it look like to live in line with the gospel? 
What does it look like to live as participants in God's mission to reconcile all things? Part of what it looks like is to practice hospitality. To share meals with people not like us. To be a good neighbor to the people in our street, our cul-de-sac, our apartment complex. And I would argue that you probably don't love your neighbors if you don't know them. To open up your home to all kinds of people, especially for those that may be hard for us to love. That's when we find ourselves participating in this gospel work. To practice hospitality. Now, we're not going to prescribe like you have to do this once a week or, you know, whatever that's supposed to look like. We want this to be a culture and a way of living and a way of being in this city. That our reputation as an expression of Christ's church here in Bend is that those people at Antioch are some of the most hospitable, accepting, inclusive, and loving people I've ever met. That when I show up in their lives, when I show up in their homes, I've never felt more welcome. Never felt so valued, so cared for. That they shared generously of what they had with me. They made me a great meal. They made me feel like part of their family. Even a simple backyard barbecue or a whatever it is, are simple opportunities for us to participate in this ministry of reconciliation by extending the grace of hospitality that we are recipients of to all those around us. So let's be good neighbors. Let's love those around us well. Open your home, open your life, create space for others. C.S. Lewis says, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And he's trying to guard against this tendency that we as Christians might have to spend a bunch of time and energy doing churchy kind of stuff. Worship and receiving communion and going to small groups and reading our Bibles and praying, and it's all good stuff. But he's going, next to the very presence of Jesus, the holiest thing you're ever going to come across is the person next to you. In the, in the house next to you, in the cubicle next to you, wherever it is, Christians who are committed to the vision of reconciliation are going to be those who love their neighbors well. Not out of primarily out of duty or obligation, but because we are people who have been loved and accepted. We now extend that love and acceptance to others. Sound good? Okay. Globally, what does this look like? As global citizens in an increasingly globalized society, the world is smaller than it's ever been. And so, What that means is that this message of reconciliation has the chance to travel quicker and further than it ever has before. And why we are committed to asking God to giving us a shaping voice in global Christianity. We want to be part of what he's doing, not just here, but everywhere. And so, 
for this one, we've uh, used familiar Antioch language in many ways. That to be those that are living as ministers of reconciliation within the world, around the globe, it looks like the practice of justice. The practice of justice, or in other words, remembering the poor. We got this from Galatians 2. Let me read you this. Paul writes, For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and to the circumcised, and all they ask is that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. And so Paul in Galatians 2 is recounting the story of kind of how God has worked in his life and how God has given him this specific mission or vocation to bring the gospel to to the world. And central to this mission and picture, he uses the language of remembering the poor. Remembering the poor. So it's... uh, Throughout Scripture, we see this picture of a God who hears the cries of the oppressed. A God who draws near to the brokenhearted. A God whose presence is especially strong with those who are in need. Walter Storff uses the language of the quartet of the vulnerable. When we talk about the poor, we don't just mean the homeless dude out in front of Home Depot. But at a global level, we understand that to be the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, and the needy. We understand that all around us, not just here, but around the world, it doesn't take long to figure out that there are people in living hell who have no voice who have no hope. And all those things we were talking about earlier, what God's perfect world looks like, a world of equality, a world of justice, a world of peace, some of that stuff just seems absolutely foreign and impossible to so many in the world today. So I'm grateful for the chance to be part of a church that has a global perspective when it comes to justice that we understand That this gospel has something to do with what's happening in Iran and what's happening in Somalia and what's happening in Mexico and every other place in the world. That this isn't just a cute little gospel for us and our insulated families here in beautiful Bend, Oregon. This is a gospel that has something to say to the worst conditions, the worst moments, the worst cases of humanity. And so we're called to remember the poor. Now, remember seems like not too strong of a word, right? Oh, yeah, the poor. And then I go on with my life. Think about the way the word remember is actually used throughout the Bible. One of the Ten Commandments is to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. God's not telling Moses, just think about the Sabbath. He's saying, no. Acknowledge, observe, live into, let the Sabbath shape the rhythm and direction of your life. When Jesus serves the Last Supper 
to his disciples in the upper room. He offers bread and wine, and he says, do this in what? Remembrance of me. Not just like, oh yeah, Jesus, that was cool. Like, this meal is supposed to actually shape us. It's supposed to dictate the direction of our hearts and form our lives. When we come week after week to receive communion, it's not a shallow remembrance. It's an anchoring moment in the presence of Christ that we hope spills over into every meal we eat this week. When we come to the table as a community, it's this picture of shared food and drink. We are sharing Christ's body and blood together. We're sharing this meal together, which would then call us to be people that share many meals together throughout the week. It speaks to both hospitality and justice. And so our dream for Antioch is that we would be a people who are living lives of hospitality here within our own town, but we are also committed to living lives of justice as it relates to our relationship in the world. That whatever level of involvement, whatever specific pathway that God would give us, when we see severed relationships, when we see oppression, when we see injustice, we're not good with that. That's not the way things are supposed to be. But we would begin to reorient our lives, to get our hands dirty, to give generously, to serve sacrificially, and to participate in this mission and message of reconciliation. So my hero, Leslie Newbegin, sums up our whole thing this morning by saying we have to think globally act locally, locally, and keep our eyes on him who dies that all might live. So as the band comes to lead us in a time of response, we're going to invite you to come to the table, to be reconciled to God as Paul implores us, to live into this right relationship that he's given us with him, and then also to take this blood and bread, or this blood and body, this bread and cup, to take it into ourselves, in part receiving this mission, saying, I want to be part of what you're doing in the world. Jesus, I want your life to come into me so that your life can flow through me. I want, I need your spirit to empower me to love my neighbors, to open my home, to reorient my life, to remember the poor, to live justly. None of us can do that on our own. But God has offered himself to us in his son, in his spirit, and commissioned us to be part of what he's doing in the world. That sounds like good news to me. And so as Chris and the band lead us, you can come at any time. And I want to encourage you, Spend as much time as you need at the tables. There's two in the front, two in the back. You don't have to file through, but you can take a moment to actually pray, to commune with God, to talk to him. Whatever's on your heart, whatever's on your mind, to enjoy his presence. For those that would like to receive even more prayer, back at the exit signs, we have people that would love to pray for you. If there's a sickness or a struggle or a challenge you're facing, 
if there's something going on in your life or the life of someone close to you that you'd love to help, help bringing that to God in faith, then uh, please make your way back there and somebody would love to pray with you. So will you stand and we'll close. Father God, we are so incredibly grateful for this story that we get to be part of. And I will confess that it is sometimes hard to believe. It sounds too good to be true that you are making a new world, the world we all want, but we hold by faith and by the witness of your son that this world is growing up beneath our feet. That the seeds of your kingdom have been sprinkled in the soil of earth and that your kingdom is coming. And so I, first of all, on behalf of this community, we are thankful that you have accepted us, you have loved us, you have welcomed us, and reconciled us to yourself. Let us live into that. But I also pray that you would empower us by your spirit to be your people in this city and in this world. The kind of people that the world needs most people who will dethrone ourselves and let you be king and live lives of radical love and justice and peace. I pray that even this week, wherever we may find ourselves, at work, at home, at school, that, Spirit, you would prompt us for those moments to embody the good news, this hope and this grace that we would extend our lives, ourselves, to those around us. That our presence truly would be good news, even if it's in small, simple, subtle ways. So we believe this is your vision, Lord Jesus. It's not, it's not something that originates with us, but it's something you've given us and we want to be part of. And so we trust you with ourselves, with this community, with this mission and look forward to seeing all the ways that you're going to surprise us by showing up in our lives and in the world. So thank you, Jesus, for your life.